The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. I will not wear the mask. 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 I will not wear a mask. I will not get the vaccine. I will not get the vaccine. And I will not get the vaccine. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust, and I will not be afraid. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked chime? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of this I hate the work of those who fall away. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall stand. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, O Lord, have made me glad through your works. I will you, triumph Lord, in the works of your are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. I will defy tyrants. 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 And good day, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people. All the boat rockers are in the house and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warned you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and also SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com and you'll see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left is Bradley's show from yesterday. If you missed that and you want to catch that, you can do so up until 3 p.m. Eastern today, at which time he'll be live in that area, I think. If he's not, then we'll have one of the educational videos in that area. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, uh, blow it up whatever device you've got, and then in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see a Rumble icon. You can click on that and join us in the chat on Rumble. We are also streaming live to Rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Also, beforeitsnews.com, top of the page there. 
dlive.tv at the Sons of Liberty, a number of Facebook pages that bear my name, and then Twitch uh, at Real Tim Brown. We're streaming there, and then also for Twitter for whatever that's worth, uh, the Real Tim Brow Two. Drop the N, put a two in there. Like I said, somebody else must be the real Tim Brown before I am. Anyway, you can catch our stream there as well. Right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, you get one; of, We send out one of those a, a day, sometime between 7 and 8 Eastern time. So be sure to sign up for that. If you want our ministry email, you want to know what's going on with the Sons of Liberty uh, radio, internet, and out among the people as we teach our Christian constitutional heritage, go to sonsoflibertyradio.com. You can sign up for that on the front page. You get one of those once a week. Usually that's on Saturday. And then finally, if you want to keep us out there, you agree with our message and what we're doing, there's a donate button at the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com. Click on that and make a one-time donation. Or you can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of liberty. And we really do appreciate you guys. Without you guys doing, you know, keeping us out there and doing what we're doing, we can't do it. We really can't do it. Now, we've got a special guest on this morning. I'm just going to sh- break open with uh, this little video here. And this is uh, from her channel. I told you she would be coming on. This is from her channel. And I, I this is from a Miami, Florida shooting event that she was at. And it's just a quick little thing, show you she's got some skills here. And so this is uh, this is Gabby Franco. Take a look. And for you guys who are on the radio, she's simply setting up to do a time shoot. Shooter ready. Stand. All right, and that is uh, that's Gabby Franco. Now I I don't know. Did any guys want to mess with that lady? And I don't know what went on here. We just went to another video. Uh, I don't know if you don't if you want to mess with that lady or not. <laughs> In any case, um, Gabby is with us this morning. She is among many things an Olympian, a competitive shooter, a firearms instructor, and a Second Amendment advocate. She's also a uh, wife and a mother. And uh, Gabby, it's my privilege to welcome you here for the first time to the Sons of Liberty. Good morning. Good morning, Tim. How are you? It's I'm Thank great. I'm great. You. I'm great. And now, and you and you are uh, freezing cold up there. <laughs> Where <laughs> yeah, you're at? My standards for sure. <laughs> you're freezing cold up there. But you came in and you joined us early this morning. We appreciate that very much. You know, I read this um, article that you put out. Uh, the other day, how gun control creeps in, and you talked about, you know, where you where you came from, and this is some of the things I want to get into. I want to get into where you came from, why you came to the U.S., how you got involved in some of the things you're involved in, and why you're such an advocate for the Second Amendment. Can you give us a little background of who Gabby uh, Franco is and where you came, where you came from, kind of how you grew up and things? Yeah, I, I grew up, I was born and raised in Venezuela. I actually came to the United States when I was 21 years old. I, my dad was a hunter. We went shooting all the time. He actually introduced my siblings and I, my sisters and I to the gun range. And we became athletes in, in the shooting sports. And I continue, I mean, like, when you when people think about shooting sports, people think it's just going to the range and blinking and you know blinking or something like that. No, it became a sport as serious as um, you know a tennis player or a soccer player. Um, and I carry on until I became an Olympian, 
and, and beyond. And I retired in 2002 when I came to the United States. Uh, life in Venezuela, I'm not going to say was same as here in the United States, but it was similar in the way that, that we had everything available to us. So if you worked, if you uh, worked hard, if you save money, you can buy your house, you can go to the grocery store and get, you know, whatever food you needed. And so in, in that in that sense, it was very similar. Um, I was in Venezuela when before Hugo Chavez, I lived in Venezuela before Hugo Chavez, during his campaign, during his first four years um, of presidency until I moved to the United States. And I realized that, well, this is not necessarily good. Um, I was on Top Shot. And for those of you who don't know, Top Shot is a TV show in the History Channel. It was a competition, a shooting competition, and I was the first woman to uh, go very far in the competition. Um, um, like I said, I'm an Olympian. Um, I'm an author. So I, I, when people ask me who I am, I say I, I am someone who really enjoys life, and I strive to do my best in what I do. And um, when I left Venezuela, I left everything, shooting, sports, uh, university, family, and everything. And in 2009, I joined the university to pursue my higher education. I was part of my goals and um, about to graduate in May. So there's a lot of things on my table, but um, I enjoy what I do, especially um, supporting the Second Amendment. Yeah, amen, amen. So, so tell us what 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 brought you to the point where you said, "I'm going to leave my homeland. I'm going to come to the U.S." And what was your thinking of there that you're coming? Uh, what was like? What was it like in those years that uh, Chavo was there? Was was it like what we saw here in the Mockingbird media about what they put about Venezuela? I know that. We have corruption here. We've got a lot of corruption here that needs to be rooted out. But what was it right. like there in Venezuela? And what's the final, I guess, straw that broke the camel's back for you? Well, I, what is interesting is obviously most people remember the last thing that they see, the last thing that they heard. So most people today, when you talk about Venezuela, they think, oh, my God, yeah, that's a horrible place, so much crime, one of the most dangerous places in the world and all that stuff. But that was not the case back in before Hugo Chavez. We, we had issues. Oh, you bet we had uh, socioeconomical issues, but um, but again, like I said, we could go to the grocery store, we could find things. When Hugo Chavez came into power, there's actually videos out there, interviews with a very famous uh, Hispanic reporter, um, Jorge Ramos from Univision, that he Hugo Chavez would say, oh no, I would leave after my term. I am good with the uh, uh, private media. I am not here to be a dictator and all that stuff. And and three specific key points that uh, turned out to be a lie. Not only a lie, he already had an idea of what he wanted to do. Uh, you know, cor power corrupts a lot of people. And uh, to me, 2002 was a, it was like a literally it was a turning point for the country. Um, there was a, a lot of turmoil. Uh, there was a coup. He was literally dethroned for 47 hours. But we obviously those 47 hours felt like 
the best thing in the world for many of us thinking, okay, this guy already was in power for four years. He had been using executive orders. I mean, left and right, uh, taking properties. Um, it, it was just, he was just destroying what we normally thought, you know, making rules, um, hurting companies, uh, literally putting everybody to the ground. And in that April, after the, during the coup, I'm thinking, okay, we have hope. You know, this, this guy is going to go. But obviously, and I, we probably don't know exactly, or we'll never know exactly what happened during those 47 hours. But um, somebody probably got put out, and he came back out from the from the shadows, and he came stronger than ever. And to me, that was like a wake up call, saying, "This is not going to change." This, and, and I was young; I was 21. Um, people were buying that socialist idea and like i said in my article we have friends cuban friends who were kept saying this guy talks just like fidel castro this guy um you know he's imposing rules he's imposing so many things that that are going to ruin the country and people around us around me and the range no that's not going to happen in venezuela venezuela is not an island like cuba i mean how could they isolate us? How could they do this to us? We're the, the, the richest country in the region. We, even today, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. Um, and, and yet we are so poor today. But back in the day, that was to me what cut it out. Like, you know, this is going to go nowhere. Let me let me ask you something. We had uh, a lady by the name of Leah Southwell. I don't know if you know her. She mm -hmm. uh, works. She's a recruiter with the John Burt Society. But we had her on. Now she is from the states, uh, but she also took and went to Chile. Uh, took her uh -huh. and her family down there. And one of the things she saw years ago, before she came back here to the states, was she saw that they were really rolling up the young people. They were, uh, you know, getting them to protest. A lot of this stuff, like what we see with BLM, Antifa, some of these people who come out the streets and they're doing, and they actually, she said, they actually thought what they were doing was right. And she said, in fact, a lot of Venezuelans had come to Chile uh, to escape what was going on there. And she said, the Venezuelan people said, we've seen this before mm -hmm. because they used us to do it. We thought we were getting something good out of it. And then nothing. And she said that the Chile Constitution itself was really up for grabs at that point. Uh, and that's when they got out. Did you see anything like that going on in Venezuela? I mean, you're, you're a young lady, 21. Uh, during that time, did you have some friends who got caught up in some of that that thought they were doing the right thing, but they were really helping to promote what was going on in a corrupt government? Yes, I do remember distinctively. We're coming from the range. We had a band who would pick us up and take us to the range. Imagine like a school bus. We'll pick up the athletes, take us to the range, and then bring us back to, to our homes. And I'll remember a conversation with this athlete. I don't remember who was in his family that was probably connected with the government or something like that. Um, and it was during that time where Hugo Chavez came back, and he was just like excited. He was like, oh, yeah, because my dad or my family or something like that, they, they, they were, you know, they were good. For them, it was good that he got Chavez back in power. And I remember I had this feeling like from my gut 
like, and I turned around because I was already thinking or planning on leaving. And I, I turned around and said, you know what? You are going to rot in here with that government and you're helping them to rotten the whole country. And I turn around, I still feel that, you know, that emotion. And, and ironically, that same athlete ended up going to Mexico, escaping Venezuela. <laughs> so to your wow. point, many people, and, 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 and even worse than that, he went to, I don't know where he's going, where is he now, but uh, the last, you know, through Facebook and stuff, the last I knew, he was in Mexico, and sure enough, Mexico has now a socialist who's moving things rather quickly, and many of us don't hear much about it in the news. But uh, the socialism in Venezuela, I think it, it was kind of exported or imported through Cuba to Venezuela because they brought a lot of uh, Cubans to Venezuela, doctors, teachers, um, saying that Venezuelans were not doing a good job and because of that they needed to bring a lot of Cubans and help the people. Um, I think that also helped a lot of, uh, you know, the indoctrination. They literally changed the education, the books, they changed yep. it. Now you see, you know, our liberate, you know, libertador. Simon Bolivar with Hugo Chavez next to, you know, next to each other as if they were friends. Um, and, and to your point on Chile, so went from Cuba, Venezuela, and from Venezuela, it has just spread out like a cancer uh, everywhere, even now Colombia. I mean, I would have never thought that Colombia would have uh, seen what happened in Venezuela, like right there next door. Um, they would have you know, abide by those ideas. And, you know, we have Argentina, right after Venezuela, Argentina, we have Ecuador, you have now Brazil again, uh, uh, Peru, Peru is okay, somewhat now about Bolivia. So, you know, it's very interesting. Okay. All right. Now, one, one of the things, though, when you're saying this, you've told people that you're going out to the range and stuff, you're in Venezuela there, and I bet some people were shocked to kind of hear that. What happens to where, and, and I can tell you, you're, you're spot on when you talk about the education. In fact, our Wednesday shows are devoted completely to government's overreach in education because mm -hmm. it is not education. That's what we call it, but it's indoctrination. It doesn't teach kids how to think. It teaches them what to think and what to say right. and what to regurgitate for their test to do. So I'm sure that that was probably going on in all these countries at the same time. And we know here in the States, Ronald Reagan was one of the guys who opened that up. Uh, for socialist indoctrination, did they did he had that um, uh, that document there with uh, with Russia that they were going to be implementing this kind of dumbing down of the American people. So if it's happening here, I'm not surprised that it would be happening everywhere else. And then that once that comes to fruition, what happens? Well, the people that's what they think. That's how they think. So that's how they respond. What is what what happened to where? The, the rights of the people to keep and bear arms in Venezuela was threatened? Well, you know, it's one of those things that doesn't happen immediately. You see, people think that it just happened, wham, you know, everything got eliminated. And no, it, it is very gradual. And one thing that we have in human behavior is that we get used to things. 
you know, people get used to being uh, taken advantage of very often. You have, you know, it takes someone else to say, hey, wake up, this is happening to you. And so Venezuela and Hugo Chavez started creating like a chokehold in gun ranges and gun, gun shops. They used to call galerias, galerias de tiro. Um, so they couldn't sell certain firearms. They restricted importation. They they restricted ammunition. So I felt it even as an athlete. I only shot 22 and 22 long rifle and pellets. And before, I'm not gonna say we have all you know tons of ammo to our reach, but we have enough ammo to train for the whole year and with good training. And then after that, around 2000, you know, 1999 and 2000, um, it became more like my coach was like, okay, here's just a few pellets. Here's just a few bullets. Um, and so even as an athlete, 22 and pellets was very difficult to find. Then they literally it, it eliminated the gun, gun ranges because who can survive like that as a business? And transfer now you couldn't get your because in venezuela people could get their concealed carry licenses now they couldn't get it through the gun ranges in their cities now they have to go like caracas and do the whole process through the government so the government became the entity who could only process any anything in one area so it, it makes it difficult because somebody who is in the country they have to spend X amount of money to travel, to do that expense, to do that. So they made it very, very difficult. They also, when they did go, because I know some few people who had like reloading equipment and certain firearms, and there were some knock, you know, knocks at the door uh, of people that were, I guess, because they were very well known in the industry. Um, so you know, it was a very rough time for a long period of time. And the complete gun ban was in 2012. So think of it. It was, what, 14 years it took. But throughout those 14 years, you know, people didn't realize it. And little by little, it was just an erosion of their abilities to own farms. And I need to make it clear, in Venezuela, we didn't have something like the Second Amendment. where It was more like a privilege. But it was a privilege that many people understood and valued. And after that, um, criminals, crime just became just terrible because they, it emboldened criminals. It, criminals knew that they could stand up in the middle of a restaurant and they do. And they say, okay, everybody put your, take your, you know, your, your watches, your wallets on the table, and could be one person or two people and in, in a restaurant full of customers and nobody would be able to stand up or nobody did. So uh, the, the criminals became ruthless. So to the point where they would take your life, whether you fight or not. If you fight because you fought and you not because you don't deserve it. You don't deserve life, you don't fight for it. So uh, life became um, worthless for, for, you know, in general. And it became to the point where people would be like, okay, I'm going to go to the store. And, and, and what? I have nothing to protect myself. You're just at the mercy of, you know, that luck. And nothing's going to happen to you. So it, it, it was rough. 
it is rough <laughs> even today, uh, but it's something that happened slowly, but it was very meticulous the way they did it. And, and people, you know, they, politicians used to say, kept saying the same excuse, oh, crime is getting worse, so we need to make more gun control uh, measures. Oh, crime is getting worse. Oh, now we mean that the measure has to be stronger and stronger. And unfortunately, people thought that because in South America and from Central America and South, like I said, we don't have something like the Second Amendment. There's no that belief that it's your right. It's more like a privilege. And has been generations upon generations they have lived with that idea. And, you know, on, uh, until at something drastic comes around and change their belief into thinking, hey, this has not changed. This is not going to change. The government cannot take care of you. The government will not be able to protect you and will not do it. Uh, you need, you must have the means to protect yourself uh, until that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you something about that. Um, and, and I want to, I want to state real clearly, and we'll get into this in just a little bit. But, you know, our position here is the government has no right to say anything about guns, how you obtained them. Uh, the whole background check assumes you're guilty. You have to prove your innocence. It's it's a it's a skirt for them to hide behind because criminals don't get their guns usually the legal way. Uh, and if they do, they weren't breaking the law before then. And then all of a sudden this, they decide to break the law. That's not that's not those who uphold the law. That's not that's not our problem. That's theirs. And then we don't punish them. And, you know, the, the system of government that we have was supposed to be built upon uh, the, the instructions out of Scripture and the punishments. I mean, we can go back into state laws. Uh, your law, yours in your state, mine in my state. We can even go to, to New York and we can see they imposed a death penalty. Now, I'm for a death penalty, but I'm for it as close to home as possible. I'm not for it at the state level. I ain't for it at the federal level. Let the people who live with that person, you know, they have a jury of their peers, let them try them. And we haven't been bringing justice, Gabby. And as a result of that, what do we do? Well, we encourage the criminal. You're going to get three hots and a cots provided by the by the people. You don't have to worry about it. You can get cable TV. You can pump weights. You can read books. You can get a college degree. You can do all this stuff while you're in jail. And some of them are just fine with that. Um, right. somebody doing for them. It's a, it's socialism is what it ends up being. Uh, but we have those kinds of things. So when we talk about a right, this is something that's universal. It's not just there. I understand they don't have it codified. But the question is, what man, I don't care what his position is, has the authority to tell other people what they can and can't own, where they can and can't go, what they can or can't eat or put in their body, or any of this other stuff, I, I don't think God has designed the world for that. Now, has he given those an authority to do certain things? Yes. He tells us in Romans 13, they bear the sword to deal with the evildoers, not for those who do good. They're to, they're to praise them. But here's one of the things, here's what we read in our Second Amendment. Just pull this up for people. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, I, I want to ask you something. Yeah. <laughs> What's, what's hard to understand about shall not be infringed? What, what's, does that mean we can infringe a little bit or a lot, or can we have common sense gun laws? What is that, what is that saying to Gabby? No, definitely not. Shall not infringe, just literally not infringing it. I think 
you know, I've been reading uh, quite a bit about the Constitution, not only the Constitution, but the writings of the founding fathers, because I'm fascinated by it. And, and one thing that fascinates me about that particular, about the Second Amendment, is very short and very clear. There is almost like there's, there cannot be room for misunderstanding, especially when it so emphatically says, shall not be infringed. Um, and I, I also think, you know, that it's very specific when they say the people. The Constitution in itself says we, the people. So who is the people? It's not, you know, the militias is that people is connected to the same wording in the Second Amendment used as it is in the in the in the, um, in the words in the Constitution. So I think it's very clear: it's us, it's our right, and of course, shall not be infringed. It's very clear cut. Yeah, I think so. I think it is too. Now we've had uh, Brent Winters on. We talked a little bit about this, and the people would have would have been understood at the time. I think to have been the men of the society who would make up the militia. That didn't mean a woman couldn't couldn't have uh, couldn't have firearms or something like that. But the idea was the men were the protectors. They're the providers. This is how God, this is the order God has set out. But but that's a part that's missing oftentimes in Second Amendment groups. I don't know if you see it, but I, I'd be curious to see if what you think about the first part, the well-regulated militia being necessary, not optional, necessary to the security of a free state, and the yeah. idea that the militia is, for most Second Amendment groups, isn't even mentioned, they think, oh, the National Guard's got that. But our founding yeah. fathers never envisioned, one, really a standing army, and two, not a federalized militia. It was the unorganized militia of the able-bodied men within the states getting together uh, to be able to fight against tyranny, crime, repel invasions, put down insurrections, all these kinds of things that Article One, Clause 8 or Section 8, Clause 15, talk about that we're to do. What do you think, as somebody who's a Second Amendment advocate, what do you think about the militia, or has that really even been brought to your forefront as far as how important that is that, that we have the right to keep in our arms so we can be a part of a militia so that we can secure a free state? Well, you know, it, it's it's uh, I'm not a scholar on the Constitution, so I'm going to put that out there. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> so I'm not trying to deconstruct necessarily what the wording in specifically say com compared to the context in, in that time, in that era. But what I would say, you know, even, even during that time, even during that time where there was so much turmoil, uh, where they were right there, whoever joined the forces, they had literally a death sentence from the crown, uh, from, from George III, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I said, even with that, they were somewhat organized. They had a goal, an intended goal. And the intended goal for what they lived back there, back then, was because they understood how much, how the powerful can destroy the people's lives and only if they as citizens can say no this is our lives and we can protect ourselves you know we can do it i think the militia is simply the in back in the day was necessary because like you said there was no outstanding army however what they had some army the washington was part of it and many other generals 
they were somewhat organized and they had an intended goal. Oh, so absolutely. I yep. think so. Is I think it's very important to keep that in mind. It's not just you know we're just going to mini militias and go and do whatever we want to do and attack whatever we we think or deem is not fair. But it was more like an organized to to a specific goal and particular was for tyranny. Yeah, no, I wasn't saying that uh, they should be a, a bunch of ragtag guys that are right. out there just doing whatever they want to do, uh, desert nomads, so to speak. No, I'm not saying that at all. But they did make provision for a standing army. That's in the Constitution. Uh, they could have that for two years to engage in, in war. Uh, and then after that, they had to keep re-upping it, which is why we have NDAA every couple of years. Uh, that's part of that. They're just going through the motions so they can fight these corporatist fascist wars that they're fighting right now. But I, the, what I'm saying is, is the people were the ones uh, we, we you've read about them, the Minutemen. Um, mm -hmm. They even came out and dealt with the Dragoons. If you read uh, what happened in uh, Massachusetts with Thomas Gage and how the people only had one time a year where they could come and have a public town hall out in the square or whatever. And he sent, you know, hundreds of Dragoons in there to break it up because they had a second one. And, you know, several hundred, a thousand Minutemen showed up and ran them off fully armed. And so they were training, much like you were probably doing in Venezuela when you were talking about that. They were training. They were getting their marksmanship down. and But they were always ready to go, kind of like uh, what you might see with a volunteer fire department. It wasn't a, you know, a, a thing of, hey, we're going to go out here and we don't like Joe down the road because he did Ronnie wrong. <laughs> so we're going to go attack Joe. That wasn't it. But it was, it was to deal with certain things. And they were acting under an authority, even though they were an unorganized militia. But I was just kind of curious as to what you think about that. So you come here. How do you get involved in the shooting sports and being a second uh, amendment advocate? Well, um, as an Olympic shooter, I came to the United States and in Venezuela, we had a full, you know, Olympic shooting range. Like our air pistol and air rifle range was a 40 lane cover, air conditioning, just a 10 meter for just to shoot pellets with air rifles and pistols. And we did national competitions there. So I thought if that's in Venezuela and the United States, I can find top of the line ranges. And to my surprise, especially in Venezuela, I, could, I mean, Miami, I couldn't find anything. And there's nothing other than the Olympic, uh, which I don't know if it's still functioning at, in Atlanta and Georgia. Uh, but um, I then I was like, I couldn't find anything like that. And then uh, I kept just digging and digging until I you know, fall into a learn about USPSA, which is US Practical Shooting Association, and, you know, competitive shooting, all the other type of competitive, competitive shooting in the US. And I just started to get involved after I got my green card in 2004. Um, that's when I, uh, I said, okay, I can buy my first handgun and I bought a nine millimeter pistol. And and I started participating in tactical shooting. That's actually, that was actually my first entry uh, with some friends I, I met. They used to do tactical shooting, meaning that we met every Thursday night uh, in Miami, at the time Miami uh, gun range. And we did some, you know, uh, tactical training, how to move, how to engage targets, wonderful community. And then from there, I branched out to, 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 to the sport per se. Okay. All right. That's no, that's, that's great. And I know there's, there's sometimes a, a bit of difficulty finding some good ranges around. There are some though, 
And uh, we've got a friend down in Georgia. He's a good old Southern fella. And uh, he brings people into his house, takes care of them. We've had him on the show mm-hmm. before. Uh, John Weaver, he's a pastor. And uh, he's like, I think he's in his 80s, he and his wife. And they're still very wow. quick. He could draw three times, put the bullet in the same hole. <laughs> that's how good wow. he still is at 80. <laughs> and uh, he trains tactically as well. So I, I think that's great. I think that's great. Now, what kind of influence do you think you're having upon the population and what you do? Because you're not just competitively doing what you're doing, but you do speak out on the importance of keeping and bearing arms. And obviously you're not saying keep it and do it so that you can go commit crimes. That's not the purpose of, of, of keeping and bearing arms. It's so that you can do good so that you can stop evil in its, in its path. And we've seen so many people who've done that, but let me ask you, what do you, what do you think your influence is there? Do you get to go and talk to kids? Do you talk to groups? What What is your advocacy? Where, where is your area of advocacy at besides in the shooting sport itself? I think people is just, they, they often, and, and this actually somebody brought out in a message on LinkedIn, by the way. He said, I am, he told me, I'm glad people around the world think like me. Like, I'm not the only one who thinks this is, that is wrong to be disarmed. And I, and I told him, of course it is. There's many people around the world who believe, the, even deep inside, that it's wrong to disarm the population because at the end of the day, the government cannot protect us individually. And even in general, it's even hard. You will see now at the border. So um, I think that the influence I get, how I influence people in protecting the Second Amendment is to see how easily it is for the government to one year they do one thing another year they do one thing and before you know it it comes into your face and you and you cannot turn things back it's amazing i mean it's very difficult when laws are passed when measures are passed to turn them around um i think also people see in me someone who i'm very straightforward you know i'm not here to you know you have your beliefs i have mine and we can have that discussion. I don't go and talk to appease people. I just say the way how life has been to me in the way that, you know, people will look at me and say, oh, you are Hispanic, Latina, minority, and yet I never call myself minority because that, that is a, a complete uh, terrible term in my mind. But yeah, sure. um, I think people see that the way I, I talk about the Second Amendment, they feel it. They, they deep inside, they say, you know what? I, you come from another country and we, and we connect. We, we, we have similar ideas. We have similar ideas. And I think that's very important. Okay. All right. And you've probably seen there was um, a lady who came from China, and she was pretty outspoken. You may actually know her. I don't know. I don't know if she was in the shooting sports or not, but she came to prominence a couple of years ago uh, she was out mm-hmm. in some of the, the alternative media and such, and she was saying the same thing of how, you know, rights are trampled, the people have no way to defend themselves, uh, and yet the very entity that's trampling upon them, they're fully armed. They're armed to the teeth, they, oh, yeah. and they make no apologies for being armed that way. What do you see here in the United States going on? Can you make a comparison as to what was going on in Venezuela as to what is taking place here in the United States? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's part of human behavior. People take for granted what they have. In Venezuela, we have a saying, the Venezuelans, you say this to any Venezuelan, they'll tell you, yeah, that's true. And we say, we were rich and we didn't know it. Um, uh, and, and it happened to Venezuelans, happened to Cubans, happens around the world, and it's happening here too. So that's one thing people take for granted that the, the, the rights that we have to, they believe the government, many, and especially young people believe the government is supposed to provide, you know, safety, security, education, like everything. And, and then you realize that, well, you know, that doesn't, life doesn't work like that. The third part, which is a, a little bit kind of different is I, after seeing the situation, how it happened in Venezuela and how it's happening in the United States is that socialism is the same product, right? But they sell it different. You know, it's the customer. You see how they have, how they pitch the idea. And I think they pitch the idea in the United States differently because the American people is a very, which is great, generous community, generous society. You know, we, the United States is the, the country who donates more money around the world. I mean, Venezuelans give so much. And that giving, which is phenomenal, is great, has also hindered many people's, I would say, judgment that they say, oh, yeah, we have to do it because, you know, to help the poor. But you don't, but they don't dig deep to say, how is it really helping? Or is it harming the whole country? How is it really going to help those? So there is just a more like a, an idea. Oh, I want to do it to help. I want to be, I feel good about myself. So I'm going to say, yes, let's abide by this socialist ideas because, you know, whatever they want to call it. And, and at the end of the day, it's just that. It's just a self, and, and there's a term called um, competitive altruism uh, that may also contribute to that in, in which they, you know, I feel, look better around society because I say certain things. But in reality, they really have no idea the deep and long-term consequences, or they don't want to see it, the, the long-term consequences of those, uh, abiding by those ideas. So there are similarities, there are differences. And, and I think that's very important people to pay attention to. They think, oh, because things are not exactly going this route means that we're not going to go there. So no, life doesn't work like that. Your parents can tell you, listen, pay attention to this because it happened to me. It's not going to happen exactly the same, but beware, because you're going, if you're going, going that path, you're going to fall in the same hole. So I think it's very important people understand those things. Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. So what do you see taking place right now? Because, uh, you know, for, I don't know, I think it was around, it was just before 1913 here in this country. We went for 125 years with no gun laws at all. There, there was nothing that that restricted arms or anything then we had an initial one that came in uh i forget when it was i'd have to pull up the date again it was just a little bit before the federal reserve came in um and then we had the real big jump in the 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 laws that came in at the same time nazi germany put theirs in they're almost identical uh that we had put in then we had more restrictions come on after the assassination of uh, kennedy uh, and then we've just seen it slowly and incrementally come in to now. I don't know if it bothers you as, as much as it bothers me. We have an, an unconstitutional agency. They aren't defined in, in the Constitution, the, the, alcohol, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. 
those guys mm -hmm. are now trying to make a rule that they're going to impose by force uh, about braces now for the for the pistols uh, that people mm -hmm. get, uh, the AR style pistols. They're just going to change that. They did the bump stock, and they said, oh, bump stocks are now machine guns. They're not, and nor do they function as a machine gun when you put them on, and you actually have to learn to use the thing. You can't just put it on and say, oh, I can go do the, the bump firing. You've got to learn how to hold that thing and everything. So what is your thoughts on what our government is actually doing now with things like that? Agencies and are a part of the executive branch who don't have legislative authority are all of a sudden legislating. Uh, we've seen that in the judicial side, and we see Congress more than willing to just put out laws, uh, bills that they that our forefathers would have said in the Declaration of Independence are pretended legislation, not real legislation. What are you seeing from that, and and what would you speak out on? Are there some things that come to mind when I ask that question? Well, I would say that you know that's the nature of government. They put more laws and they put more control. That's not the Second Amendment. Not, it's not the only one who has been uh, trampled because of That's right. laws and in registrations or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, but what I would say, like I said before, um, they always the government always find the little excuses to make, especially when it comes to to, to gun rights or um, restricting gun ownership. And what I find interesting <clears throat> is that they find the things that really don't affect crime. Okay, like for instance, you can blame, you can say everything you want about AR-15s or rifles, and they are the least used in, in crime by the FBI, even by the FBI, that are but a long, but a long shot. That's right, that's right. right. It's, it's huge. So you wonder why did they do that? Because they make this story. They say, this is the worst thing in the world. This is, this is so horrible. We need to ban it. And, 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 you, and, and those of us who look at data, who look at what the, the, the information that matters, and say, okay, that doesn't match. This firearms is least used in, in crimes, but you're still making a big deal and you want to ban it. So guess what is next? If, if, that, if they're doing that to something that doesn't, it's not going to change the crime rate, then they would have the perfect excuse to ban what e, you know, like handguns, regular handguns, nine millimeter, you know? So it, it, it is, they, this is strategically how they do it. They go for the things that don't, that don't matter because most people would say, well, I don't have a, 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 a brace for my, I don't may probably, my, no, many people may have an AR, um, and I think that's the biggest issue, the biggest issue in the communities, whether you call it the farm community, whatever you call any community, when the, those bans and those restrictions start. Because people are like, oh, well, that doesn't affect me, not a big deal. I don't even know what that is, right? And then people don't pay attention to it. And before they know it, they have been already, the government has already eroded so much to it that when it comes to the big thing, it's already too far out. Okay. All right. Well, what do you think about uh, when, when these guys, what do you say to people? And they say, well, um, you get these ignorant people who think the president can just write executive orders and I don't know, make rainbows and pots of gold at the end of them. Uh, and they say, well, we're going to, we're going to enforce, we're going to use all the power of the office 
and it's really a usurp power because they don't have a power except to enforce the law, then that's the law right. that's actually constitutional. If it's not constitutional, they should be saying, no, we're not enforcing that. Uh, we, we shouldn't right. be doing that. What, what, do you, what do you see with this push and, and then the marketing? I think that's what you're talking about, how they market their tyranny to the people. Right. What do you, what do you make out of it when they say, we're going to ban, you know, we saw, what was it, several years back, I think it was during the Obama days, we saw uh, Feinstein, who was the lady who said, if it was up to me, I'd say, Mr. Ms. America, turn them all in. No, no, no mm -hmm. discrimination over the, over the weapon. What do you see when, when these guys are saying, well, we're going to write executive orders and we're going to make force of this? Now, the executive orders, my understanding is it's only for federal employees working in the executive branch, and they're telling them what they, what they need to do. But they can't enforce something because the Constitution really doesn't apply to me and you, per se. It's applying to those who are supposed to represent us. It's chains on them, as one guy said, to, to do what we elected them to do. What, what goes through your mind when you hear some of this stuff coming? We've got to ban assault weapons as though there, there's any other kind. Any weapon can be used for assault. But uh, what, what goes through your mind when they, when they do this kind of stuff? Do, do you hear the echoes of what was going on in Venezuela? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Hugo Chavez did most of his ruling. He actually dismantled the whole constitution. They, he changed it. He put power on himself dismantle the government if he rearranged everything so yeah it does but more importantly i think what it tells me is how society is changing not necessarily for more liberty but more like giving up you see when uh we see these politicians going out and doing what they're doing saying and you don't see a and what i'm talking about the the people to to making phone calls going to, to, to their own state houses, uh, to their legislators, uh, talking to them, say, demanding what's going on because that's something that we, the privilege that we do have in the United States, that does not exist in many countries in the world. I don't know which one. I, we couldn't do that in Venezuela, that you can just go and ask for a meeting for, with your legislator, but we can do that here in the United States. So what it tells me is that little by little people are just being just like, eh, I have too much to do. And, and that's part of, that's part of the, of the, of the process. The government keeps you busy, keeps you busy finding a job, you know, uh, making it harder for people, or at least that's how it happened in Venezuela and making it harder to people to go by. So they are busy doing other things while the government is working and making things on their own. So I, what it tells me here in the United States is that um, the American people need to be, I know it's annoying talking about politics, I know, but it affects us. Whether you're a business person, whether you're a mom, a, a, a stay-home mom, whether you're an athlete, politics, legislation affects all of us. And uh, the more involved we are, the better chances, the more chances we have to protect what we, I mean, this is a wonderful country. I don't see anybody in the United States saying, like in masses, leaving the United States. It just doesn't happen. But you see people leaving in masses from other countries yep, or do. wanting to come here to the U.S. Yep. Yeah, and that's basically because we still have the the elements of liberty that were established, even though we're facing great tyranny that's in our face right now. Real quickly, I want to ask you this, and then we're going to let you uh, plug your sites and stuff. What are some that you said talking to legislators and stuff? Do you think the best idea 
for protecting the right to keep and bear arms, as well as the other ones, uh, is to deal with it locally? Or would you, or, 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 or are you of the mindset, well, we need to go way up the ladder? I'm not saying that people can't engage their state and stuff, but for the most part, I've said D.C. is so corrupt, it needs to be, it needs to be dissolved, as Thomas Jefferson said in the Declaration of Independence, and we need to form new government that will secure our liberties. Based if we want to, if we want to base it on what we have, but we got to get rid of the corruption out of it because that's what's killing us is allowing that cancer, as you said, to, to grow in there. We've got to get rid of it. So, would you say the best course of action is local action? I definitely think so. Amen. I definitely think so, uh, especially because when you get people engaged. When you get people run up in their cities and their counties, you know, uh, demanding to their mayors, to mm. their governors, to to people, to their local, you know, authorities, um, to demand to, to abide by their demands, you know, to protect their rights per se. That's what we're talking about to protect their rights. Um, it, it it would make a huge change federally too. Once as engaged as they are, they will vote. And then both make changes. People, apathy is what makes, you know, having the worst governments in the world when people don't vote. And just making sure that people are engaged, that they call their legislators, they call the, you know, their leaders. It makes it, you know, you saw that how parents went out and talked in the in school meetings. And that made a huge impact. Not only yep, in, in Virginia, not only in Virginia, but it also makes a huge impact nationwide. Would that be the same if if a group of Mongols to 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 the the uh, state? Um, um, oh my God! To the Department of Education and go and sit in a meeting with uh, you know whoever is the leader at the time? I don't think so. I don't think so. I agree. So I think locally is is the key. Yep. Amen. Amen. Gabby, uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, what I want you to do, you got about uh, 30 seconds here. Tell people where they can find out more about you. Yes, you can go to my website, GabbyFranco.com. You can go to Instagram. Twitter is GabbyFrancoTS4, which stands for Top Shot 4. I'm also on Facebook, um, on YouTube. You can find me on YouTube. And um, so, yeah, that's that's what I got. But uh, thank you so much for having me. And like I'm saying, you know, this country is, and I say from the bottom of, of my heart, this is the best country in the world to live, to succeed, to raise your children. We all need to protect that. Amen. Amen. Gabby Franco, thank you. Hang on and I'll say goodbye to you off air. Guys, be sure and thank catch you. Bradley at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. We'll be back with you in the morning, Rotten of the Core Wednesday with the Common Core Diva, Lynn Taylor. We'll talk to you then. See ya.